This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an iHeart Original. It's one fine winter's day in the late 1990s, and prominent Haley lawyer Lee Schlender is busy working from home. Like a lot of us out here in heavy snow country, uh, I had my house upstairs and my office is downstairs. You build on two layers because our, our winters are so long and so much uh, snow and cold that it made sense. That's Lee. Lee is deposing a client of his, Jim Levy, whose heating and ventilation firm is alleging they're owed $54,000 over an unpaid invoice. Lovey says that their client, Valley Entertainment, has refused to settle the bill. We were downstairs taking the deposition and Bruce came charging in and like, you know, boy, the, the Lone Ranger is here. And he sat down and listened for a bit and was, you know, just kind of, I don't know, what would you say? Huffing and puffing and being a little belligerent. According to Lee, Bruce Willis starts making faces and emitting strange noises. He's like a student acting out in class. Like, he can't believe Jim Lovey has the audacity to tell his side of the story. Now, to be clear, Lovey is not alleging Bruce Willis owes him money. He's alleging Valley Entertainment owes him money. And Bruce Willis is never a named party in the suit. But Willis does own Valley Entertainment, who does allegedly owe Lovey the money. And clearly, he's taking this a little personally. And he jumped up out of his chair and ran up the stairs. He didn't know where he was, I don't think. He didn't know the building. Again, this is a home office. Well, my wife was upstairs in the kitchen cooking, and he ran right into her. <laughs> she said something like, well, hi, 
Mr. Willis, how are you? He didn't realize it was a hall. I don't know where he thought that stairway went, but boy, if you could hear everything crashing and banging as he tried to find the door out. And he finally did. It was clear Willis didn't think much of the allegations or of any kind of dissent in Haley. The fuss over an unpaid bill was a kind of rejection. Willis had, after all, employed countless skilled tradespeople for his projects. He had injected millions into Haley's economy. And in doing so, he had become possibly the strongest force in the community. He had what he had long enjoyed in Hollywood. Power. Influence. The days of being a quiet resident were over. There were battles to fight now. Legal ones, political ones. Because Bruce Willis had a platform. Sometimes he'd use it to interrupt a deposition. Other times he'd use it on bigger issues. But even movie stars have limits. And while Bruce Willis might have been able to rattle the people of Haley, influencing the entire state of Idaho would be a different story. And quite possibly a disaster of nuclear proportions. For iHeartRadio, this is Haleywood, an iHeart original podcast. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is Episode 5, Citizen Willis. In spending years and millions of dollars in constructing the Mint Bar, renovating the Liberty, erecting the E.G. Willis Building, and more— Willis had employed dozens, perhaps hundreds, of skilled laborers. And the vast majority didn't seem to have any issue. When someone did, well, they took his Valley Entertainment to court. While Bruce Willis's deposition interruption may not have been his finest moment, it may have been born out of real frustration. The lawsuit brought by Jim Lovey's Eagle Company was a result of heating and ventilation work done on the E.G. Willis building. Jim Lovey and his brother Jack sued for $54,000, then raised that number to $120,000. But the case had problems. A computer failure had wiped out the company's detailed financial records. The judge ruled that mistakes had been made by Eagle Company during installation. Ultimately, the court ruled in Willis's favor. By the time everything was accounted for, Eagle Company was ordered to pay a total of $59.74. The two-story E.G. Willis building was the source of other issues. It was a symbol of Haley's evolution. Willis had torn down one of the oldest buildings in Haley to build it. Here's former Blaine County Commissioner and Idaho historian, Tom Blanchard. When they tore that building down, it turns out that the building next door to it had an incredible mural on it that was just beautiful. It was an old Henry George cigar advertisement. 
The cigar was just five cents and, according to the ad, just for men. When he tore that down and exposed that mural, he left it up for a couple of weeks just so people could enjoy it. And then eventually that building had to go and it got torn down also. Old Haley was slowly disappearing. When Willis put up his new building, he pictured a retail complex, a Haley-sized shopping center with his 50 Styles Diner, Shorty's, one of the flagship attractions. It was going to be retail. Let's say you're a jewelist or a flower store owner or a coffee shop guy. And it's like, oh, my God, I can get in and be in, you know, Willis's this building. And it's like the only building that's going to be like that in town. That's Nancy Rommelman. Nancy was a writer for L.A. Weekly who was dispatched to Haley to see about Bruce Willis's investments. And, you know, that's kind of a big deal. And you're going to get tourists that are going to want to come in. And, you know, you're you're riding on... The fact that this is a building that Bruce Willis built and built after his grandfather. But Rommelman says Willis's plans looked more like an office park. So you sink your money in. It's, you know, $30,000, $60,000, whatever it is. You build your floors and lighting and, you know, plans and insurance and you do all this stuff. And then, oh, oh, actually, it's not going to be retail. We're just going to, for whatever reason, maybe they couldn't find tenants or they just changed their minds. Who knows? But now it's going to be offices. So now you're this lonely dude on the second floor with, let's say, a jewelry store. You're screwed. You're absolutely screwed. You are definitely not going to get, you know, the tens of thousands of tourists coming in to walk into an office building and maybe go to your jewelry store. It's, it, it's never going to happen. Rommelman spoke to Francois Perry, the owner of a furniture store in the building. He insisted on meeting her in front of a hardware store on the outskirts of town as though he were being watched. In a car. We sat in in the car. And, yeah, that was a little strange. But obviously, some people in Haley felt like Willis was too powerful to go up against. It made them a little paranoid. I recall him as being definitely still pretty head up about the whole thing. Francois told Rommelman he had moved into the E.G. Willis building in 1996. His business was called Primitive Design, and he was eager to bask in the sunshine supplied by a Willis-funded enterprise. And it was billed as a retail mall. But instead of clothing stores or ice cream parlors, Francois's neighbors wore suits and business casual. The E.G. Willis building wasn't, he felt, as advertised. Who wants to go furniture shopping in an office building? Francois sued Willis and Valley Entertainment to get back the $30,000 he had invested. Willis was off shooting another movie at the time Francois filed his claim. Willis couldn't possibly fail to show up on set in order to appear in court, they said. It would cost over $128,000 in misproduction per day. Willis's attorney then filed a counterclaim. Francois was also told that if he lost the lawsuit, he would be responsible for Willis's travel costs. For Bruce Willis, that meant paying the fuel charges for his private airplane. In the end, a jury rejected both claims. Each party would be responsible for their own legal expenses. So that was one of the guys that tried to get his money back. He didn't want anything else. He just wanted to get what he'd invested in. And Willis's crew fought him tooth and nail. He didn't win it. And I got to tell you, you got to feel for these people. Now, 
Were they, you know, counting their chickens before they hatched? Well, sure, but that's what, you know, hopeful business people do. And they, you know, they didn't count on the fact that Willis could get out of whatever he wanted to do a lot more easily than they could. He had a lot of options. They had one. In 1999, Francois declared personal bankruptcy. Another small business owner, Tony Lanning, told Rommelman that Willis had made her an offer to buy her antique store. Willis wasn't interested in selling antiques. He wanted the land for a planned entertainment complex. A set of blueprints had been going around town detailing the plans. And Lanning was surprised to find they showed Willis as the owner of her store. At the time the plans were made, it was just assumed she would sell. Anything else was unthinkable. But Lanning wasn't interested in selling. It was another hiccup in Haley, a sign that not everyone was over the moon about Willis being there, especially if you like to get a good night's sleep. The biggest issue that I had with Willis um, was associated with the airport, and the airport was a problem the major part of the uh, population is centered around that airport within, you know, three miles of it and in the direct flight line. Tom Blanchard again. He was flying a G2, and he was arm-in-arm um, in arm with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was also flying a G2. And the G2s were the noisiest aircraft, large, you know, large private aircraft that, that you could get other than the Learjet. And he would fly in at 2 o'clock in the morning with his G2 or take off. That woke you up in Bellevue. Sometimes it seemed as though Willis didn't know his own strength. What his buying spree was doing to disrupt the economic ecosystem of Haley, to say nothing of the noise pollution. If Bruce Willis wanted something, no one was going to outbid him for it. If he wanted to develop the town, he expected people would follow along. If he wanted to land a plane in the middle of the night, he was going to land that plane. So what if there was a little collateral damage? Besides, Willis didn't often have to deal with the consequences of his decisions personally. That job was left up to his Valley Entertainment. The head of Valley was Joe McAllister, a childhood friend from New Jersey who Willis had imported to be his right-hand man. McAllister was a big guy, brash. Not a bad guy, just assured. Here's Nancy Rommelman. The guy who had been sort of Bruce's money guy was someone that people were intimidated by. He was apparently like a big dude, and he was still around on the streets of Haley sometimes, and people were, I don't think like physically afraid of the guy, but they were intimidated by him. McAllister had a lot of crap to deal with, literally. One of the problems facing the E.G. Willis building was the town's iron grip on sewer permits. In 1995, there weren't any to go around, with the city's engineers fearful the town had reached its capacity. The sewer was discharging too much waste into Big Wood River, and the Environmental Protection Agency was on their back. The following year, the town finally relented, releasing 110 permits for sewer hookups. 
But that was for everyone. Homeowners, business owners, anyone who needed to use a bathroom in a town that was growing. The E.G. Willis Building wanted 10 permits to add a salon, bakery, and other businesses. But the permits were too hard to come by. When the city released them, people grabbed lawn chairs and camped outside of Haley City Hall. McAllister criticized the limits in the local press. He even tried to shame Haley's decision makers by saying that Willis planned to build a $600,000 industrial light manufacturing building in nearby Bellevue. Willis would have built it in Haley, McAllister said, if only the business climate had been friendlier. He said Bellevue had a, quote, cooperative spirit. And he added, Bellevue also had a sewer. Haley was being potty shamed. The sewer capacity issue also stopped Demi Moore's plans to turn an old drugstore into a fitness center. She also wanted to build a doll museum, relying on her extensive 2000 doll collection housed at Friedman Mansion. Haley's gatekeepers wouldn't allow that either. Time and time again, Willis wanted to grow Haley, and he kept running into red tape and lawsuits. It was enough to make some in Bruce's orbit want to get out of Idaho. In 1997, McAllister announced he was resigning as president of Valley Entertainment. He was going back to New Jersey. One of Willis's top employees at Valley Entertainment took over, But the regime change didn't get off to a good start. Just a few months into the new president's tenure, Haley police and state officials executed a search warrant and found 15 marijuana plants on her private property. According to Idaho law, that was considered manufacturing. She was taken into custody and faced five years in prison or a fine of $15,000 if convicted. She argued the weed was for her personal use. The charges were eventually dropped, but the feeling that Willis and his crew were beyond reproach was wearing off. For Willis, it had been a frustrating 18 months. His main operator, Joe McAllister, had left only to be replaced with someone up on felony charges. Haley was getting stingy with sewer hookups, cramping his business expansion. His plan to improve the sidewalks outside of the E.G. Willis building was getting the runaround too. As he had with the Mint, Willis wanted them heated to battle the snow of Haley's harsh winters and keep his patrons from sliding butt first through his front door. Just as Haley had counted on him to give their economy a boost and raise their profile, Willis was becoming more and more ensnared in local politics. A man who could command 10 to 20 million to do a movie was arguing with a town over where people could go to take a dump. His political involvement would soon grow into something that concerned the entire state of Idaho. And unlike Francois Paris, the sewer and the heated sidewalks, if this one didn't go his way, Willis issued a stunning ultimatum. He said he'd leave for good. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, 
Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1998, Bruce Willis became an astronaut. Well, his character became an astronaut. In Armageddon, Willis plays Harry Stamper, a deep-sea oil driller. Stamper gets recruited by NASA to help stop a humanity-ending asteroid hurtling toward Earth. The plan is, Willis's character lands on the asteroid, drills to its center, and plants a nuclear bomb inside. And then he hightails it off the asteroid and blows it up before it strikes Earth. Of course, things don't go exactly as planned. The silliness of the plot wasn't lost on Willis's co-stars. Ben Affleck once asked director Michael Bay why NASA couldn't simply train astronauts to become oil drillers 
which would probably be easier than doing it the other way around. Michael Bay told Affleck to shut the f*** up. The movie would make half a billion dollars. At almost the exact same time, Bruce Willis was dealing with a real-life nuclear catastrophe. This one was at home. Idaho's Nuclear Engineering and Environmental Laboratory, now known as the Idaho National Laboratory, opened during World War II. It generated nuclear power and researched ways to deal with the waste it created. So there was a lot of depleted uranium just sitting around, among other things. It was near the state's largest freshwater aquifer, sure, but at least it was in the middle of nowhere. Well, 60 miles east of Haley, to be exact. In the mid-90s, the state of Idaho made a deal with the Department of Energy. They'd allow the federal government to dump more than a thousand shipments of nuclear waste from out of state. In return, the federal government promised to remove existing nuclear waste from the state over a 40-year period. Basically, Idaho would get a lot of dump trucks full of nuclear waste in the short term in exchange for having a lot of it removed in the long term. It wasn't a great deal, but the alternative was bleak. The government could just dump nuclear waste there anyway, and Idaho could get nothing at all in return. But not all of Idaho's residents trusted the government's word. If you had lived in Idaho long enough, you knew the government had first promised to remove the existing waste back in 1970. Some compared the whole situation to Chernobyl. Here's Wendy Jakewet, former executive director of the Ketchum Sun Valley Chamber of Commerce. There was a situation with regard to uh, nuclear waste coming into our state. And there was a campaign, a lot of it was from here, uh, against that. And the campaign was called Stop the Shipments. And he was a funder for that group. He saw himself as a Republican, but he was angry at the Republican governor because he felt that Governor Bat was violating the agreement the prior governor had made. He donated 10 grand to raise awareness for the cause, a number that eventually grew to over $120,000. Even though he hated talking to the press, Willis gritted his teeth and made his way through the interviews to get the message across. And he framed it as a kind of ultimatum. If Idaho didn't pass the referendum, Willis said he would leave Haley and the state altogether. If everyone votes, yeah, we want it, I'll stop. I'll shut up and I'll start looking for another place to live, he said. To some, it was like a petition was being circulated to run Willis out of town. After all, if you signed, it was a vote for him to stay. If you didn't, it was a vote for him to leave. One newspaper editorial said some residents might just take that deal. Maybe Francois Paris would have signed it. There was something about the threat that Willis leaving was supposed to rattle the population that came off as self-aggrandizing, as if his absence would be a massive blow to the state. Some even seemed to resent Willis for having an opinion at all. To them, he was an outsider who was positioning himself as an expert on nuclear waste, not normally the purview of actors, Bruce Willis wasn't just deciding what was best for Haley, he was deciding what was best for Idaho. 
Calls to the governor's office came in telling him to, quote, go back to California. But Willis didn't back down. He doubled down, holding a press conference on the steps of the state capitol to criticize the state for allowing the deal to go through. We want zero nuclear waste in the state of Idaho, he said. And if Idaho couldn't provide that, then Willis said they needed a new governor. He predicted politicians backing the deal would be working at a 7-Eleven in the next four years. Still, a lot of people appreciated Willis's activism. It was a demonstration of his commitment to Haley. Someone even came up with a slogan, stick with Bruce Willis for a better Idaho. He cared about the well-being of where he lived and he had the celebrity and money to support a just cause when he saw one. But in the course of the drama, a newspaper columnist named Dan Popke discovered that Willis, who had rarely been outspoken about local politics in the past, was not registered to vote. He published that fact, much to Bruce's chagrin. It reinforced the idea of the classic Hollywood stereotype, a strongly opinionated actor who didn't even bother to vote in the nine years he'd been living in Idaho. And because Willis wasn't registered to vote, he wasn't legally able to sign the petition he had been promoting. Willis quickly ran to register. 52,000 people signed the petition. The people, Willis being the most vocal, had spoken. And it seemed like victory was in sight, that no mutant offspring would be arriving in Haley decades from now. But the referendum was defeated by voters. The nuclear waste was allowed in. Willis had failed to stop the asteroid. And unlike the ending of Armageddon, where, spoiler alert, Willis sacrifices his own life to save the planet, Willis remained in Haley. Maybe the threat to leave was insincere, a bit of showmanship. Or maybe Willis was too financially entrenched in Haley to pull out. But either way, his bluff had been called. At first, Willis was unavailable for comment, with his publicist saying he was busy shooting a movie. Later, Willis insisted he had been misquoted about leaving Idaho, that it was a misunderstanding, that both the question and answer were all tongue-in-cheek. He also called Dan Popke an asshole. Popke said the quote was accurate. Bruce Willis reminded himself why he hated talking to journalists. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, Millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Even though Willis couldn't influence state policy, he still had a territory of his own to survey. Haley, where things could be shaped to his liking. And while some in town thought Willis had too much power... Some felt like he was doing the right things with it. The E.G. Willis building? Francois Paris wasn't happy, but others were. Well, I started my business in June of 97, and I actually rented a space, a retail space, about 480 square feet from the E.G. Willis building, right next to Shorty's, a little diner that they started. That's Christopher Roebuck, a jeweler and owner of Christopher & Company, a jewelry store that's still in Haley today. So we had customers like uh, Arnold and Maria and and Bruce and Demi. It was a great venue to be in. For him, the E.G. Willis building represented Willis's commitment to Haley, its ability to piggyback on his fame, to raise the profile of Willis's related businesses and the entire town of Haley. So what if Christopher's retail business was in an office building? Downtown Haley was still the place to be. Definitely, there was a business first. They were, they were investing in the community by rebuilding old buildings and refurbishing the Liberty Theater and the, the Mint Building and the Willis Building, the Easy Willis Building. Uh, it brought people to town and got people excited about going out, even people that were local here, you know. They wanted to go out and be a part of the community and part of the changes and 
the exciting new things that were happening. That also meant Christopher and other tenants of the E.G. Willis building could become inadvertent tour guides. There's people that are starstruck, really want to see him, get his autograph, and people would come into my business and, and say, have you seen him today? Or is, have you seen any of the family? And, you know, we, we do, but we didn't want to exploit their experience here because they, they, were, they wanted to raise a family in a small town. We didn't want to push people toward them that were going to pester them like paparazzi. And we had plenty of people that were coming in town with microphones and cameras that wanted to take a picture of their life here, which is invasive for anyone that has, you know, any notoriety in the world. Haley was still in a Willis boom. The E.G. Willis building and his other projects were having a domino effect. Even things Willis didn't directly finance were improving. Haley's sidewalks were widened to accommodate more foot traffic. New street lamps and trees went up. Around the same time as the nuclear disaster, Willis made another major purchase, a ski mountain. It was Soldier Mountain near Fairfield, not far from Haley. Here's Tom Blanchard. Okay, Soldier Mountain. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what... Um attracted him to buy that, but he did buy it, and he put some improvements in. And I think the difficulty was that if you come to Sun Valley, why would you go to Fairfield? Because Fairfield was um, more rural, uh, more isolated, uh, more provincial, I guess that might be a term, more, you know, Idaho rural, um, than certainly Haley. And there wasn't any attraction that would, you know, in a sense, develop that mountain. When Willis bought the mountain, people in Camas County, where Fairfield is located, were ambivalent. Would it mean another deluge of Willis-owned properties? Would Soldier Mountain become the Haleywood Hills? They didn't need to worry. Willis liked the mountain's modesty. It was worlds away from the ritzy Sun Valley ski area. Tickets were cheap, $18. Unlike politics, it was just fun. And no one was going to dump any nuclear waste there. Say what you will about Bruce Willis opining on public policy, but at least he cared about the state and about the people in it. And that Christmas, I think it was, might have been my first Christmas or maybe my second in the building and opening my store. I got to work one morning and I found a little note under the door. It was just a little Christmas card, uh, like a, just a little note from Demi that said Merry Christmas and best wishes to you and your family. And, and that meant a lot to me because here I've borrowed money from my relatives to start my business and I'm, I'm doing it in their building and here I get a Christmas wish from Demi, a personal handwritten note. That was heartfelt. So that really meant a lot to me as far as my connection with the Willis family. Francois Perry had one experience. Christopher Roebuck had another. Which side of the Bruce Willis coin you landed on in Haley was hard to predict. The following year, Willis announced plans to join the Twin Falls Area Chamber of Commerce. It was ceremonial in nature. Willis didn't attend any meetings. 
but it was his way of showing support for the region's business community. He believed business owners should set examples. They should be citizens as well as businessmen. And businessmen have a certain kind of power, right? Trying to branch out and get involved on the state level hadn't worked out for Willis. But that didn't mean he couldn't affect change in other ways. Willis was still the de facto head of the gazillion-dollar movie industry, after all. Willis had been careful to keep his two worlds, Hollywood and Haley, separated. One was work, and one was home. Then something came along that would convince him to let those worlds collide. Bruce Willis would make a movie just a few miles from Haley. Not a Die Hard sequel, not another Armageddon. But in many ways, it would be the riskiest movie of his career. Next time on Haleywood. I got a call from the casting director. And I said, well, why are you calling me? She said, well, Bruce wanted to have all of his friends audition. But then you come upon a huge problem, and that is you have to just about fly in everybody, right? Any big movie is going to bring all their principles. Extras is different. Extras you get anywhere. Extras might as well be a lamppost. They're just moving lampposts, right? Hey, walk here, walk there. I think that was a mistake because the kind of satirical, farcical nature of the piece, I don't know, I don't think it worked. It seems like it took a long time to edit, and then it was screened one or two places, and maybe that didn't go well. Haleywood is hosted by Dana Schwartz. This show is written by Jake Rawson. Editing by Derek Clemens, Mary Dew, and me, Josh Fisher. Sound design and mixing by Jeremy Thal, Derek Clemens, and me, Josh Fisher. Original music by Natasha Jacobs. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson, Austin Thompson, and Marissa Brown. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch, and our executive producer is Jason English. Special thanks to the people of Haley, Idaho, and all those who've shared their stories. Haleywood is a production of iHeartRadio. Until next time. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.